0: Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact
1: from fiction. Fact from fiction.
0: Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries.
2: Is the most powerful weapon in the communist arsenal, but it's as a psychological weapon, not as a military one. The Soviets have gained more by using the bomb as a psychological weapon than they ever could have using it as a military weapon. Under the constant threat of nuclear annihilation, we've accepted concessions, compromises, and defeats one after another, which would have been unthinkable without that specter of a giant mushroom cloud fixed deep in our subconscious. As a matter of fact, the bomb as a psychological weapon is being dropped on the American people every single day. Movies such as On the Beach, Seven Days in May, Doctor Strangelove, Failsafe, Planet of the Apes, these well-produced and entertaining movies have done really a professional job of strengthening subconsciously at least the premise of the grand design. Motion pictures, of course, aren't the only source of this conditioning of the public mind. Radio, TV, books, magazines, and newspapers have all played more than their part. The message that has more or less been drummed into our heads follows the pattern pretty well presented in this illustrated brochure entitled, Let There Be a World, written by Felix Green. Green is well-known in ultra-leftist circles as an importer of propaganda film from Red China, and for his lectures and motion pictures extolling the virtues of life under communism in Asia. By the way, I picked this up not too long ago at the communist bookstore in Los Angeles, the progressive bookshop it's called. Every once in a while I browse around in there just to find out what the progressives and the intellectuals are reading nowadays. And this is a classic example, page after page of beautifully reproduced photographs, all depicting in minute detail, the horrors of nuclear war and the beauties of disarmament and peace. Just take a look at a few of these. And naturally, just for openers, we see here in the beginning, the fireball and the mushroom cloud. Then the charred bodies at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Grim reminders of the the pain and the suffering of any war, but particularly of nuclear war. And then for those of us with weak imaginations, we're shown what could happen to our cities. According to this map, if one of the super bombs were dropped on Manhattan Island, we could cross off everything clear out to Bridgeport, Connecticut and fallout would take care of the rest, probably clear to California. Speaking of fallout, they have a special section here just for the ladies. Preserved in jars of formaldehyde, these are the grotesque remains after autopsy of tiny infants stillborn and deformed, supposedly as a result of radioactive fallout. Now, what woman can look at these, or what man for that matter, without some kind of a lasting emotional reaction against even the mere thought of risking nuclear war. Well, here, rather graphically presented, is what at least is supposedly the only way that we can prevent this from happening to us. Disarmament, of course. And finally, back here at the very end, the appeal to the heartstrings. Let there be a world. It's really quite well done, I think. You have to give these people credit for knowing how to merchandise an idea. By the way, these are generally the same people who like to label anti-communists as being fright peddlers. Well, with regard to this particular book, I'm not saying that these pictures are phony or that the devastating effects of nuclear war have been exaggerated to the public for propaganda purposes.
1: There 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 he is. is. (laughs) There he is.
2: Well, I'm so sorry for the delay.
1: But, um,
3: no, I just lost trash of the time.
1: No, it's yeah. it's wonderful to see you here, Mr. Griffin. And we were just playing a clip of you, a, a young and dashing G. Edward Griffin from the mid 1960s. And uh, we were we were we were uh, commenting on uh, buying something at the Communist Bookstore in, in L.A. or something. Yeah, uh, right. Th- very interesting stuff. So. G. Edward Griffin, uh, I don't know what kind of an introduction you need. My audience is very excited about you. Uh, they everyone here that's listening to the show knows about your work. You go back to the uh, 1960s when you first started writing and being involved in, in politics, so you, you've had quite a career in this. Uh, obviously, The Creature from Jackal Island is is well known in the literature to anybody who listens to this show. You wrote a great book about cancer and laotrol and everything. So we're going to cover all we can as long as you can stay. I mean, we'll, I'll, I'll keep you on air for as long as you can be or as long as you can take it. Just let me know. But I'm, I'm thrilled and honored to have you here.
3: Well, thank you. It's good to be on. And I apologize to you and, and to your, your audience that I, I really lost track of my time. I got my head inside a, a software problem. And you know what that does to, to your <laughs> yes. consciousness. All of a sudden, it was, uh, I missed my appointment. Anyway, here I am. So fire away. I'll do my best. Oh, well, I'm
1: sure. Well, it's it's like I said. I I am I'm a little uh in awe of you. So tell us, you, you obviously you go back to the 1960s when you first started writing this. What what led you down this wayward path? I ask everybody that because I you know I talk about why why I started down these rabbit holes. What did you see yourself doing this, or did you have a so-called normal career first before you started going down these uh, wayward paths?
3: Yeah, <laughs> no, I don't think anything about it was normal, but uh, <laughs> it certainly wasn't where I. I'm not now where I thought I was headed. You know, I was like like a, most young guys. Uh, I was all wrapped up in myself. I wanted to uh, find the prettiest girl, on, prettiest student nurse on uh, campus at the University of Michigan <laughs> and marry her, which I did. And then I thought I'd get a good job with a big corporation, climb the corporate ladder, make lots of money and live in a penthouse or something. You know, totally ma- materialistic type, type of person. And uh, so I was pursuing that path. And then I started accidentally, I stumbled across some literature, a little simple pamphlet. And um, I don't remember the title, but something like What You May Not Know About the United Nations. So I, I read it and I was shocked because, you know, I just came out of school and they just taught me that the United Nations was our last best hope for peace. And here was this college professor from a midwestern university saying that nope that's not the way it is folks that's uh, kind of the opposite and of course i was incensed because i knew that i could trust my teachers and yet this guy was a teacher he was a professor so that sort of got me confused and to make a long story a little shorter i asked i happened to go to the library and so i'm going to check this out myself and see if what he says about the un is un is true and <coughs> So I did that, and lo and behold, I found out it was true. And uh, so that's kind of jarred me off my path. And the more I read, that went went to other pamphlets, other, I found a magazine called The Free Man, subscribed to it, published by the, uh, let's see, that's the, anyway, it's the Foundation for Economic Education, and that's the first time I ever read any free enterprise type of information. All my textbooks were all collectivism, need for government control how wonderful it is that we have a you know a democratic government and all that and uh, this little magazine introduced me to the other world which is maybe governments create more problems than they solve and that they they always uh, need problems in order to expand their budgets and uh, their importance and so they create problems just so they can solve them all that kind of thing and that was the uh, news to me first thing you know about nine months into this path uh, I discovered that I had a crusader gene. <laughs> it started mm-hmm. to vibrate. And mm-hmm. I, I found out that something about me, I didn't know. I felt indignant. I felt like, hey, I better do something about this. I felt responsible for the future of my family and and uh, the country and the world, humanity. I thought, this is terrible if this is true. So um, I all of a sudden, I, I don't know whether it was a, a U-turn, but it definitely was a right turn or a left turn or something, and I was down a different path, and that led me eventually to quit my job with the corporation I was with. My poor wife almost had a fit because she's how are we going to feed the family? But this time we got a couple of kids, and uh, I just walked away from my job, and it was a good job. I say I was I was on the track so to speak, but I couldn't uh, I I couldn't uh, focus on this. I thought this is silly. I'm I'm living in a dream world let's go change this to reality so anyway that's when i got serious about what's going on in the world and it was just the beginning of my many years of learning it hasn't stopped yet there isn't a day that goes by that i don't learn a couple of very important things that just amaze me and that most of them are contrary to what i thought and it seems that the most important ones the more important issues in one's life you know like our our future economy uh, the culture in which we live, the freedom which we enjoy, the health which we have, all the most important things to people, um, their privacy and other things, why the, we have, we're have we living in illusions. Uh, I was raised, you know, thinking that we this was still a, the land of our founding fathers, where the Bill of Rights was honored, and uh, we fought wars against ty- tyranny and tyrants, and against fascism and Nazism, and uh, We went through a cold war against communism. We would never do anything like that. And the more I researched, the more I became sort of an amateur historian, the more shocking it was to realize that most of those things that I thought were true were not true. They were part of a just a big illusion. So by this time, I'm in full galloping crusade. I'm on my horse with my big spear. I decided that since I had some training in school in communications. Uh, I had enrolled at the University of Michigan in the in the communications, uh, in the speech department in particular. I had uh, worked for a television company in the television production. And I had, I really thought I wanted, wanted to go to Hollywood and uh, you know, become a big movie mogul or something like <laughs> that. And uh, that fortunately did not turn out the way I had thought. So here I was, uh, a little guy without a job trying to, uh, Make ends meet for his family, and I had to do something to earn money. So I offered myself as a a public speaker uh, for ver- anything. They wanted to pay me, I'd go and give a speech. And then um, that wasn't working out too well. I gave a lot of speeches, but I wasn't able to put much food on the table. And um, and then I got a call from a publisher. Said they had heard about some of my presentations. They wanted to know if. I would write a book for them to write and they would pay me for it. And of course, by this time, I'm really hungry for money. So I didn't know I could write. In fact, I was sure that I couldn't write. I was in speech and communications. And writers, you know, those people who sit around and write things on pieces of paper like that, Well, that, that's for sissies. The real, <laughs> the real energy was out there where you're standing face to face with the audience. Well, I needed the money. So I remember saying on the phone to the guy, Oh yeah, no problem. I that's fine. I'd be glad to do that. So, um, i believe it or not, I'm nearing the end of this, and uh, so I've got all my boxes out on the topic of the United Nations. That seemed to be one of my favorite topics in those days, and I put together a presentation on it and on taxes and the Federal Reserve system and things like that. And um, and but this felt this publisher wanted me to to write a book on the United Nations. So I pulled that out and, and away I went. And finally, after about four months of intensive research and putting it all together, I had boxes full of the stuff. I, the day came when it was time to write. And you know, you've know you seen perhaps movies of this where the writer gets writer's block. He's got it up here, but it just won't come out. He's, you can't write, you can't, throw, throws away pieces of paper. I went through that, I went through that i sat there for half a day in the little office, and I, I can't write, I can't write. And I said, darn it, you gotta just write A, B, C, Mersey dotes or something. So I started to just scribble stuff on a pe- piece of paper. And the first thing you know, I, I was writing a whole sentence, and then another whole sentence. And the first thing you know, my mind got wrapped up in what I was trying to say about how I get into the, such a topic as the United Nations from the perspective of a guy that had no, no knowledge of it and so forth. and I got through and I read it, I said, hey, darn, that's good, I can write. And from that <laughs> moment forward, I was—I've just enjoyed writing. And I would never have known that I could write if it hadn't been for that um, rather accidental experience. So the bottom line is, from that point forward, it was one accident after another. I wound up doing things I was sure I would never be able to do, or the last thing I thought that I would do. I wrote a book on cancer a very technically oriented book on on uh, cancer therapies on alternative cancer therapies versus uh, orthodox chemotherapy radiation and so forth that was a a long project to learn enough about it to write a book on it and defend myself against the you know the medical experts and then my biggest project was a 7 year research uh, encounter in which i had to learn about the Federal Reserve System and central banking, that concept around the world. All countries have central banks. I didn't even know what a central bank was. I thought that was one that was downtown. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not what it was. So uh, my life, I guess, had been through all of that, mostly uh, winding up in places I never thought I would go to. Certainly wasn't headed there.
1: Well, when you were were writing the the Creature, what became the Creature uh, from Jekyll Island, did you, uh, I, I imagine you must have uh, contacted Eustace Mullins. He was kind of the the, the first one to, uh, and he worked with Ezra Pound and, you know, the Secrets of the Federal Reserve. I mean, I'm sure you oh, must yeah. have
3: contacted him. You know, well, I never contacted him. I tried, I, I failed to reach him for some reason. Oh. Wow. Well, certainly, I certainly read his stuff and I wanted to meet the guy. I might have talked to him over the phone or something, but I, I never was able to swing a, a face-to-face uh, encounter. But yeah, he was an excellent pioneer in this uh, whole field and did At, a great job. And, and Ezra,
1: uh, Ezra Pound, too. I mean, he Ezra Pound is who inspired him, and I, I'm sure you yeah. know about that, but yeah. for those of you yeah. who don't know, Ezra Pound was a well-known poet in his time, and he uh, yeah. ended up being one of our more notable political prisoners of all time. He spent, what, 10 years in St. Elizabeth's Mental Institution for his uh, his uh, activities, supposedly in support of Mussolini during World War II, but he he knew all about the Federal Reserve
3: yeah they, these guys were well informed and um, of course I, there were many more too perhaps less known i was surprised at how many books had been written on this topic yeah and i wondered at the time well with so many books how come nobody knows what's uh, what's going on <laughs> there and uh, i got not necessarily so much with uh, um you know with what we're talking about here but so many of the books that were on the library shelf were written as um, textbooks you know, it was like something you perhaps read in a college classroom if you were majoring in um, money and banking. It had a lot to do with the discount rate, how many people are on the board of directors of the, of the uh, you know, the, the board of directors of the Federal Reserve and the various state branches of the Fed and so forth, how many votes it takes for this and that, how deep the discount can go, all these things. And that's interesting, but it's not it's not a page turner, you might say. So when I looked at the way in which the central banks of the world will create money out of nothing and then charge interest on it, yeah. charging interest on yeah. nothing, and I became, again, my crusader genes started to rattle a lot. And I thought, is, is this true? Well, I, I confirmed that it's really true. In fact, it's worse than that because they don't create money out of nothing. They create it out of debt, which is even worse than nothing. The more Debt. And so, and since you when you wrote the book,
1: they had the ten percent reserves on, and now I I don't think they even need any reserves, isn't it one hundred percent? they have no reserves th- at all. I mean, yeah. it's just unbelievable.
3: So, no, they 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 talk about reserves, but there are no real reserves. And and the asset, so-called assets that they can claim as an asset, all the debt instruments, uh, they'll drive the, you. They, you can hold a bond from another country. You can hold a bond from a a corporation that's actually bankrupt and call it an asset you know that bond's never going to pay it pay anything on it but the federal reserve and the other central banks oh, well, they love those things because they have lots of zeros at, at the end of them you know and they can and look at our huge assets not worth anything but then they can multiply that by 10 or 20 and, and loan money on that debt and collect interest on it i thought when i discovered that if this is true i'm in the wrong business boy i just think collecting interest on nothing Pretty good deal. Well, so I, anyway. I think
1: I, th- I think you took ownership of the Federal Reserve in terms of research because I, that that title was great, "Creature from Jackal Island. I think that grabbed people's attention. I think it's largely responsible, maybe, for why well, it was actually, so successful. Well, actually, I'm glad you
3: pointed that out because that's where I was headed with, to a moment ago. I decided that this story was not a how to how to do banking, how they create money, how this, what the measurements are, but it was a who done it. It was uh, like a mystery story because nobody knows how this thing really works. It is a great mystery and they keep it a secret from the yeah. average person. And I thought, well, by the time I did all this stuff, I, I knew what the crime was, I knew what the crime was plunder of the American people, and I knew how they did it. I know I knew where they buried the body, <laughs> and so to speak. <laughs> so I decided to write to write it as best I could. As a discovery, sort of, uh, not a novel, but just a sequence of historical events in such a way that it would become a page turner. So I don't. I guess I probably lucked out and did pretty good on that because the book was amazingly successful. I thought we'd probably yeah. sell maybe a copy to my aunt and my uncle and and force my kids to buy one. It'd <laughs> be about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, how, how it is, uh, I ask everybody this, it goes goes into these areas. How did your family, you, you mentioned your wife was kind of aghast when you quit your job. How, how did your family uh, react then? And how did they react, I guess, over the years as you kept, you know, this is what you, this became your avocation. Uh, did, did they support you? Or you, so many people uh, in our field, uh, the families don't support them.
3: Well, yeah, I was very, fo- uh, very fortunate. All of my family supported me. I had four kids, and uh, and that girl from the University of Michigan Hospital, that was a student nurse. Yeah, they all supported me. But you know, um, not everybody has the Crusader gene, and um, that it's pretty rare that uh, somebody's willing to throw it all in like I did, and uh, say, well, come hell or high water, this is what I have to do, and uh, and just do it. Dedicate your life to it. Whether there was any if you could see any exit or not um, So none of my kids for example became a crusader, but they certainly are well informed and totally supportive but uh, you know, they're not going to give up their jobs and uh, and go out in the battlefield um, of ideas and become warriors right. of ideas, but they are totally supportive and I think that's It's just a way that's of looking great. at the total cross-section of of the population. Maybe only Three percent or five percent of the population are really stupid like I, and they, I, I say that advisedly <laughs> because it could have yeah. gone differently, and I could have been out there you know um, digging ditches now just to pay for the uh well the groceries
1: well, I see my pr- my producer tony Artiburn is, is is at the desk there, and normally he uh he steps out during the show, but he was very excited about you coming on he's he's a great admirer of yours too and i know he probably has a couple of questions for you but before tony this is I, I'm, I'm trying to find the live stream on uh i don't see the live stream on american
0: play am i missing something no you're not missing anything at all it just did not stream there's nothing i can do about it right now we'll have to rerun it i'm not sure exactly what happened i was just trying to do the uh the tech on that don nothing nothing oh, okay. that we've could have done better It just something didn't happen something didn't connect so we didn't have rockfin streaming live but we got you on Facebook and Twitter. And I put you on all my channels as well.
1: Okay, cool. Well, yeah, if you want to ask for that, maybe work on that. Cause I, I don't know. Wow. Hope we can well, get I'll the can, chat and everything. Well,
0: Mr. Griffin that I, I am a uh, gold and silver dealer because one of the reasons is because I read the creature from Jekyll Island and uh, decided <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to change my uh, financial path uh, years ago. And uh, it ended up uh, where I had the opportunity to go into the gold and silver business. And that's how I, I take care of myself and uh, feed my family. So I, I appreciate all of his work and I know it goes back decades and decades and uh, uh, just an amazing body of work and, and contribution to like you called the, the war of ideas, sir. And I just wanna say thank you for that.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for that. And you're quite right, it is a, it is a war, it's total mm-hmm. war, more, more of a total war now than ever before in history because it's, yeah. so, it's so psychological now, it's more subtle. And therefore, more powerful. If you can uh, control a person's thinking or at least heavily influence it, uh, it's easier to to control people that way by making them feel good about your tyranny. You tell them it's for their own good, you know, you've got to tax you, it's for your own good, so we can protect you against terrorists and and viruses and things. Oh, yeah, it's for your own good. You've got to take your vaccines. Otherwise, you know, you'll infect your grandmother. And it's always oh, for your own good that you uh, you uh, support the government in these wars, because otherwise we would be taking. And mean, it's always for your own good, right? So, and that's, a, that's a, a science that was developed only in the last 100 years, pretty much starting with the French Revolution. And um, yeah, if you're going to control people, um, it's a lot easier to make them think it's for their own good and therefore like you because you're doing it, than to have them hate you because you're doing it with bayonets.
0: I've often thought the the people that uh, created nuclear weapons and napalm they also care about your health. <laughs> <Like> they, <laughs> they want you to be healthy, and uh, they just take this
3: just take this shot. It's good for you. Don't you know we we, we yeah. want what's best for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a hard that's a hard red pill for a guy like me to take. In my younger years because i was i was really a boy scout sort of thing you know i believed all the authorities everything they said everything that they taught in the school that oh that's good i'll memorize that maybe i'll get a, a b plus on my report card but i really took it to heart i thought all this stuff was true. well
1: I, I i wanted i wanted to, to touch on that a little bit because you are i mean you, you're you're just incredibly alert and energetic and everything but you know you're you're you're, I think you're going to be 91 years old in November, right? Which is just remarkable. So you've, you've, you've been around for a while. And what must you think of, uh, you know, say uh, what I call the America we used to live in maybe before nine 11, America 1.0, we're living, I think America 2.0, or I don't know what it is now, but I mean, it's a completely different world. What is when you first started doing all this in the 1960s and everything, and you're getting involved in politics, and now you look at the world today with the overriding tyranny ever there, everywhere, the woke authoritarianism, the lockdown of society, and uh, the you know the war on free speech. What do you think? When you, I mean, are, are you tempted to tell everybody? I told you so. I've been trying to tell you this for decades. Why didn't you listen? Look what we have here now.
3: Well, I'm tempted to, but I I'm smart enough not to do that. The last thing the person wants to hear is you calling yeah. them an idiot and. Uh, <laughs> and and the truth of the matter is that's not true because except for a couple of accidental things that happened in my life i probably would still be living in that dream world so it's not it's not that some people are smarter than others i just think some people are more fortunate than others i had some good role models and i accidentally stumbled across some literature that jarred me off of my position so what do i feel about this after all these years is that well when I was younger, I thought that, uh, my, by younger, I mean in my first married and in school, school days before then, I thought America was um, the very country that, that we still talk about today, You know where human rights are valued, we fought against tyranny and all that. And I thought, well, that's great. I'm glad it's all taken care of. I don't have to worry about it. I'm lucky I was <laughs> born into this great country and uh, so we got freedom and liberty. And then we went to war with uh, you know, the Nazis and the fascists. It was a good thing, put them in their place. And, and then we went to the Cold War against the communists. That was a good thing. Keep them from getting out of hand. Little did I know until many years later that during those years when we were fighting against all the isms, communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, never did I realize that we were building that system right here under our noses. And quite often we would ignore the sacrifices of liberty here because we have to fight against those bad guys over there, you know, it's for your own good. We're back to that again. And I I, I remember first time I realized that I'm studying um, the hypocrisy of Pearl Harbor because President Roosevelt and his top advisors all knew that the yes. Japanese were going to attack. In fact, that's sure. what they wanted. They worked very hard to insult the Japanese and to cut off their supply lines for oil and so forth. So they were at war with China and so forth. And you here we were taking side with their enemies. We knew, or they knew, that the the Japanese respect for honor and all that sort of thing would cause them to, to uh, in indignation, if nothing else, to make some kind of a blow against the United States. They knew that. And we know that they knew that now because many of their documents and internal letters have survived. And they talked about it. And their goal was to get um, Japan to attack the United States so that we could get into the war as a major player, but not as an aggressor, but as a wounded uh, victim. And that way, that was the only way they figured they could get the American people on board to fighting a war that was essentially over in europe and in asia and uh, americans want to know part of war but when you get attacked by an enemy well then that's different so i was reading all that stuff and realizing how underhanded the whole thing was they didn't even tell our our admirals and generals on pearl harbor that they knew the japanese were coming they let them be sitting there as ducks their own military commanders and there there were hundreds of military personnel there that were deliberately consciously sacrificed so that the slaughter and the, and the destruction would be so dramatic that the American people would say, ah, we've got to, you know, retaliate. We've got to, we've got to fight back. Let's get into this war. And so once I realized that, I thought, oh my gosh, this was, this isn't what I thought at all. And I didn't realize, and, and I started to write about it. And I said, I guess what was happening was that our leaders were telling the american people that the only way we can fight tyranny overseas is to adopt tyranny at home and that's basically the rationale and the argument often was you know if you, you can't fight you can't fight a war and worry too much about liberty you do whatever you have to do to win a war there's an old saying that the only um, the only immoral or un- the only immoral act in war, only one, and that's to lose. Right. So, if you're in a war, there's no such thing as morality. Everything is cast aside in order to win the war. There's certain certain logic sound to that, but if in the process you become you become yourself, you become what you were hoping you would not be forced to become by your enemies. If you voluntarily do that yourself, but well, then I don't see where you know you're making out very good on this process. So I'm taking too long to answer your point. No, it's a good And answer. that is that um, it took me a while to, to come to grips with all this because this was so contrary with my upbringing, and I had to realize that back in those days when I was first uh, beginning to feel my crusader gene vibrate, even then I thought, well, this is a you know our country is strong. We would never become I know victims of that here, but we might have to worry about people invading us or something like that. Never did I realize that some of the very people that we were rallying behind in this fight against communism, for example, were were actually promoting the principles of communism and fascism right here in the United States under the name of fighting communism. So, and and I bought into it. I bought into it. I thought, yeah, we got to win this war. This is terrible. I didn't pay too much attention because I thought these were our leaders; these were Americans. They would never, never turn against the American people, would they? (laughs) Would they? Yeah. So there you have it. That's the long answer. It should have been shorter. But the short answer is yes. I never dreamed back in those days that we would wind up to a state where we are today. I thought it was absolutely it would would have been um, insane to even suggest such a thing because we were America, and they can't. That'll never happen in america
0: and the first mm-hmm. casualty of war is the truth absolutely right? yes and that's the first thing that goes and i mean yeah i have the same problem because i i was a member of the u.s army Uh you got there do a little bit of background noise. Yeah, I hear it. Yeah. That it's not it's
1: not here. I don't there's know. The leaf blower here.
0: Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it sounded like yard workers or something. Yeah. I was like there's something humming <laughs> through anyway, but uh yeah, I have to, as a veteran I have uh, I have had to deal and struggle with that and and come to terms with even the wars that I was part of were uh cooked up on falsehoods. I have nothing to do with American security, had nothing to do with my freedom, with others freedom and uh it's just a hard pill to swallow. I can still uh, love the warrior spirit and the people that I served with, they didn't, they didn't make the policy. They were no. carrying it out, but, um, mm-hmm. I have to deal with that every day because people say, well, thank you for your service. And I go, didn't help. I'm sorry about that. Didn't help with your freedom as we're wrapped up in a dystopia right now. And, right. uh, you know, I think that the war is here. Uh, there is no external enemy, not really. I mean, they can create one. Uh, they invite it. I mean, I don't, I would love to get your opinion, uh, Mr. Griffin on the, you have two things happening with the uh, buildup in Ukraine with us, uh, the provocations there. It almost seems like we want them to do something further to escalate it. And the same thing with Taiwan. I mean, you know, as well as probably anybody that a long ago we ceded Taiwan to the uh, to the communist Chinese government when we opened China in 72 and said, yeah, we believe in a one China policy. And Jimmy Carter put it in writing. But now all of a sudden you have. Uh, Nancy Pelosi landing there. We're going to give him a billion dollars. I have no idea what's going on, other than I think are they building a new war?
3: Well, I, I think yes, but it's not the kind of hot war that everybody's afraid of. Um, my personal view is the, the primary value of atomic warfare or something of that na- of that magnitude is psychological, the fear of it. An enemy can and get more concessions from, from you when you're afraid to fight him than if you do are fighting him. And if, I remember during the, the cold uh, Cold War days, people were scared to death about an atomic war. Looking back on it, there was no chance in the world, really in my view, that they were gonna do that because they were getting everything they wanted out of fear, fear of the war. They didn't have to destroy anything, didn't have to uh, run the risk of being destroyed themselves. They can just rattle their missiles. And the U.S. was doing the same thing, pretty much. So gradually it dawned on me that these people at the top are using atomic war and terrorism and all those kinds of things with just enough realism to make it scary. But they'll never unleash it on a massive scale because then they're going to be destroying the infrastructure that they wish to control. So I don't really look for a hot war, although one could accidentally break out or they could plan a little one, you know, like they could blow up Cincinnati. That would that would do it. I mean, there. what would happen to the resistance in America if there was an atomic bomb dropped in Cincinnati and we lost one major city? Well, that's all. It would still be the end. Everybody say, well, whatever we have to do, we've got this terrible enemy. We're all going to go up in atomic dust if we don't, you know, join into a new world order or whatever it is. And right. So that's how it works. It's the psychological warfare that we're in. And these these um, threats of hot wars, I think, are really, if you look at them, are part of the psychological phase of that war. I, I, yeah. You've lived through
0: some amazing times. And I, I look back at your work, and I know that, you, you know, we were just playing the video of the media scare uh, tactics on the, on the bomb, you know you have the book out and you're showing oh, the images yeah. you went to the library the progressive bookstore and uh oh, yeah but they they still use those you're right i mean everything is everything is built on fear it's it all is, it's, yeah. it's a spirit of fear everything's fear and uh there's no <laughs> there's no carrot only stick really and uh this will happen to us if we don't you know i I they were showing like fallout what to do in fallout drills in New York City like two months ago you know well, second really,
1: cover Duck and (laughs) cover,
0: you know, I mean, interesting times. I I think you're probably right about this. The overall arching goal is is psychological to get people to comply. And it's almost like how much more do you want
3: people to comply? It's almost all the freedom is gone. Well, I saw something the other day and I had to agree with it, that every one of the uh, Bill of Rights have already been destroyed, tossed out the window, except the Second Amendment yeah <laughs> and they're working hard on that really hard so yes, the freedoms gone, yeah. are already gone right yeah
0: yeah just it's subject to how much attention you want paid to yourself i mean look at the people that uh the january 6 rioters you know or i say yeah. some of them were just tourists uh they weren't rioters at all and they're just right. rotting away in jail i mean there's no they're not really charged with anything you can't face your accusers you just denied
1: all will do process yeah denied all due process they're trying them on national television i mean what uh, how did, how, what are your political, have you, have you given up on politics? I mean, what, what, what did you think of Trump and the Trump phenomenon? And obviously I, I probably don't have to ask you what you think of Biden, but, and the Democrats, but uh what, what do you think of the political mess that we have out there now?
3: Almost wish you hadn't asked me that question because, <laughs> because I'm probably going to be pretty unpopular when I respond as I, as I'm going to, yeah. but it's, it's how I feel anyway. Uh, We were talking a little moment ago about how powerful fear is in this war. In my view, the, the two most powerful weapons that our enemy has are fear and controlled opposition. Now, most people know about fear, but you don't hear many people talking about controlled opposition. What does that mean? That means that there have been Leaders put up by your opposition and put up and funded and instructed, coached to appear to be your leader. And they do such a good job of it that you accept them. Vladimir Illich Il- Il- Lenin wrote about that at great length. Yes. I think you, maybe in one of those old films, I might have mentioned the, the main theme that Lenin had in most of his essays, as I recall, was this. He said, comrades, if we go into a country and we want to take it over from the inside without having to fire a shot and invade it, just take it over from the inside, we send our agents in and ask them to stand up on the street corner and say, we are communists and we are here to control this country and we want to get rid of your national origins, your, your culture, your legal system, and make everything the way we want it as the rulers. No, no, not at all. You must uh, tell them that you're an anti-communist. Tell them that you're strongly supportive of the nationalistic goals and the culture, and be the strongest opponent of communism you can be. Why? Because then they will think that you are a genuine thing and they'll select you as the leader. And then you'll be in charge. Once you are the leader and in charge, then you can sabotage them, you can betray them. You can even shoot them if you want to. You don't need to debate anymore because you're in charge. But he said, in order to do that, you have to be pretty convincing. You have to do quite a few good things. In other words, it's a step backward for us, but it's a two steps forward for us because we now control the opposition and we can make sure that we will win. I've never forgotten that. And you can see that happening over and over and over again. I mean, I think of how many pieces of legislation went through our own Congress. And um, there were, oh, take the the one bill that Congressman, um, oh, I forgot. Anyway, there was a bill that we're gonna, we were going to um, audit the Federal Reserve System. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ron Paul. Ron Paul, yeah, of course, Ron -Paul. Paul. Uh, he was a congressman at that time and we're going to uh, edit uh, <laughs> the 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 federal reserve system we're look at the books and we're really going to investigate it and um, paul had all of these congressmen signed up and they said yeah we signed on to it we signed on to it the day came to vote on it and i guess half of those people unsigned when it came time to actually do something and so the vote it, it just failed miserably Time after time after time, there's somebody who's been a big proponent of a good bill, but when it comes to the House and the floor, well, I change my mind at the last minute. There's a change. So they're the leaders that we depend on, but they always fail us when the time comes. Now, you ask me about Mr. Trump, and uh, I have to look at him and say, is this a possibility as repugnant as that would be, as horrible as that would be? and everything I see about it makes it seem like a possibility. I'm not saying it is, but if we refuse to even consider that point of view, we're stupid because it's our enemy's favorite weapon. And I wondered why when Mr. Trump was first a candidate and nobody took him too seriously, but he was on the campaign trail, he spent a whole day uh, with uh, Kissinger. Yeah. Well, Kissinger, as most people know, are, is a bag man for the Rockefellers and was head of the CFR for many years. He's about on the other side as far as you can get at the highest level. Now he's not one of these wild leftists. He's the deep state guy. He's, he's really where the power is, where the money is. So why would Trump spend a day with Kissinger? And I finally figured it out a couple of days later. I said, I remember it. Um, Mr. Trump told us that we should vote for him because he's a deal maker. He said, I can can work with anybody. I make deals. So I thought, oh, okay. He went there to make a deal. I wonder what the deal was because he wanted to become president more than anything else. And then I started looking at all the things, Mr. Trump said all the right things, people wanted to hear him talk about the constitution and freedom, he he actually, supported a couple of things. He got us out of the the treaty for environmental treaty, uh, international treaty at the UN, but nobody noticed that later on, he was all for another one that was even worse. We never read about it, but everything he did that sounded good, we find out if we dig deep enough, it was undone later on very quietly. We look at the events in January, had all these people out there to support Trump and the critical moment comes and Trump leaves for some reason. He's gone. They're not there. The mobs wonder, what do we do now? We don't have a leader now. And that's when all of the rioting started by the, you know, Black Lives Matter people and the uh, Antifa people. They weren't the uh, Trump people at all. They were imposters. They were false leaders, in other words. They were there pretending to be Trump supporters when in fact they were just the opposite. I could go on and on and on. Uh, we look at uh, at Trump's Background. He's he's the most. I'm thinking he's the most blackmailable guy on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Let me put it yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be easy to blackmail this guy, and he hung out with uh, Bernstein, Epstein, it, yeah, the yeah, world's greatest Epstein. blackmailer. Yeah. And, you know, put these things together, folks. What you can't look the other way. And now right. we see uh, we see Biden being so outrageous against Trump. What's that going to do? That's going to solidify the whole world in favor of Trump. How dare they (laughs) do these things? Trump is his opponent, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think Trump could generate as much support for himself as Biden can generate (laughs) for them by what he's doing. And that's how the game works, everybody. That's how it works. You know, football has the Statue of Liberty play. Most sports have uh, deception in them, but people think, well, when it comes to politics, oh, there'd be no deception. People are exactly as they appear to be. I'm just saying that it's a healthy question That's to a good ask question. that question and and then maybe consider the possibility.
1: No, oh, it's it's not unpopular at all. Believe me, we mo- most. I mean, I'm sure some of the people listening are still supporting Trump, but most people got tired no, of the channel. act. Not on this channel. Yeah, most <laughs> people get tired of the act a long time ago. Oh, wow. I, I
3: didn't know how your stance was. I thought maybe I was stepping on toes. No, no,
1: no. And- and it's, it's no it's because you know uh, I voted for him, but uh, I believe you know I, I didn't think his rhetoric could possibly be real, knowing his history. But you know, I Roger Stone, uh, who at that time had not burst into the scene as much, he he loved my first book, Hidden History, a lot, and contacted me. And he ended up writing the foreword to the paperback edition, which now probably brings me more negative attention than positive. But at the time, I thought it was great. But uh, he he told me uh, that, you know, you're going to love Trump. He knows about all the conspiracies. He knows what's going on about JFK, 9-11, everything. And I was thinking, well, you know, it's, it's possible this billionaire, maybe he just, you know, was biding his time and making money and maybe he didn't like what he saw. That's the only kind of outsider we can get, right? A Ross Perot type or a renegade billionaire. But obviously, you know. It didn't take very long to realize he was uh, smoking. All was it? All sounded fury, signifying nothing, I guess. But uh, and I think most of the audience probably agrees. I, I don't think too many of them
3: <laughs> are still sold on Trump. Well, I hope I'm wrong. I hope we're all wrong on this, because, um, well, the most obvious reason is that most uh, most Americans have fallen for it, and uh, so they think that Trump is going to save us. Well, if if Trump is controlled opposition, he ain't going to save us. That's right. That's he's going right. to lead us in battle, but he will surrender.
0: Yeah. I mean, you would think he would do something like if he's, I, and it's like <laughs> <laughs> everything he talks about, I'm like, if only you would have been president, if only you yeah, exactly. said <laughs> I just watched that for, and it's, it really the last year should have told you everything you needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. And the weirdest thing, because I've lost lots of listeners over this. Uh, I mean, yep. I'm in, I'm on worldwide Christian radio. I mean, they just fell off because I kept saying, "Well, I mean, he he put it. He put this in motion. He he funded the lockdowns with his executive order. Uh, he never undid it. He put Anthony Fauci in charge of the country. He said that he, him and uh and and Burks were two smart people." left him there and then just would complain about it. And then like all the way down to the end and no rallies. It didn't, he didn't come back. It was no fighting spirit. No. Uh, his, his 2020 campaign was nothing like 2016. It was not anti-establishment or anything like that. It was just because he didn't do anything. So, and then I just run into people all the time. I don't know what to tell them. Cause they look at me like, why aren't you supporting him? I'm like, because I, they, all this, <laughs> I feel like we're in different timelines. Like we're not looking at the same thing.
3: Well, it's because they can't conceive of such massive deception, that's all. They think that if a man runs for public office, then he's pure. And of course, just the opposite is generally true because governments and big corporations are the great um, depository of money and power, and money and power are the strongest magnets for the predator class. Every crook in the world wants to get into government or into some big corporation at the highest level so they can use their that influence on their own personal behalf. So uh, anyway, does it does
1: it seem to you that a lot of us believe the most prevalent, I think, theory out there right now is that all the craziness we've seen in the last couple of years is that the elite seem to want to bring everything down like they're they're This is a planned destruction of society. Uh, do you see that? Because that certainly seems to be happening, all the talk about water shortage and food shortage and, uh, and maybe not heat in the winter and just you, this, just doom and gloom all the time. But it appears that they're trying to bring this down. Did you foresee something like this or do you think that uh, that such a thing is happening?
3: Well, actually, I did foresee this that aspect of it from almost the beginning because it was, to me, it was so obvious these people were not making mistakes. Uh, they were executing a master plan. They wanted to uh, comfortably merge the United States with all the other countries of the world in this globalist system that they call the New World Order. And the UN, of course, is the embodiment of that. And in order to uh, merge a country like ours with all of the totalitarian states and all the little tinhorn, a banana republics and everything you gotta you can't leave america standing high and i remember saying early on that they wanted to bring america to her knees as quickly as possible because they wanted people on their knees begging for food shelter clothing protection and all of those things and um, the analogy occurred to me even then that when a man is drowning he's not interested in talking about the bill of rights He's yeah. only interested in getting up and getting air. So if you can destroy everything and, and take, eliminate the affluence that we have, eliminate the standard of living, the dependability of our electricity. Now they wanna take our gasoline automobiles away from us and force us into electric automobiles and then we don't have the electricity to drive them. So that'll give them the ability to turn off our transportation just by turning off the switch. And all that, it's all, everything points in that direction. So to me, it's just a, it's a given. They want to destroy the the United States economically and morally and in every way so that we no longer worry about such silly things as freedom of speech or right to assemble or anything like that.
0: Yeah. And it has to be from the inside. It has to be how they've done it. I mean, if you were to take down the country, you just reverse engineer the decades that, you know, what, last 50 years, it's, it's just how you would do it. You know, to take, take us off the gold standard, you take away our manufacturing prowess, you, uh, you corrupt our politics uh, to the point where nobody knows which way's up or down. And, and, you know, this really goes back to something I say all the time about um, you know, your work on the, the federal reserve, I say fiat is fake. It's the head of the snake. Everything leads back to the fact that we have no accountability with our currency. And I know that's, it's kind of it's one of those things that if you really um, wonder how things got this bad, you just do trace it back. It goes right back to the creature of Jekyll Island.
3: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Because all this costs money and they can't collect it in taxes. So you just have to skim it off the top in inflation. Of course, now with the Great Reset coming up, they don't even have to do that. They'll just say, well, we'll take it out of your account because we own your account. You don't own that money. We're letting you use these tokens as long as you're a good boy and a girl to do exactly as you're told. If you step out of line, well, then you don't have any tokens. You can't, you can't buy any food. You can't pay the rent. You're know, you you're out, you're begging and you're you know, at the mercy of your friends if you have any left. because They don't want to be seen with you. Oh, they'll be cut off too. So you, you see
1: digitalized currency coming?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it won't be what most uh, advocates of digital or cryptocurrency think. The dominant form of, of um, digital currency, of course, we've already got digital currency. Now, if you think about it, your credit card is yeah. totally digital. There's nothing behind it. So in many ways, the, the coming uh, form of uh, digital currency is the cryptocurrencies will be very similar In that um, there's no substance behind them but they'll be different in that they'll be totally controlled by the central banks Um, and by that i mean they meaning you and me will have our personal checking accounts owned by the central banks we will not own them in the sense that we can control them we will be given them to use as long as we behave and uh, if we're totally supportive of the system, we may live pretty well. But if we're critical of the system, we're not going to live very well. And there'd be nothing we can do about it because that, that'll be the only currency allowed. And it, it won't it won't be cryptocurrency so much in the sense that you don't know who has it or what it's used for because the blockchain is very open to investigation. You You see a transaction, if you could read the blockchain, and you can if you've got the right software, you can read every every transaction that you and I have ever made on uh, on cryptocurrencies if it's on a blockchain and it's a public domain. So now we're getting to uh, the uh, central bank uh, cent- central bank cryptocurrencies, and that's a whole different thing because uh, y- you have no secrecy there. There's no confidentiality at all. With the present uh, system, you can have a private chain where like, you and your neighbors can grow things and share food and uh, labor and so forth it could be private and you could still make that work but on a very limited scale you can't pay your rent can't buy your groceries you can't uh, pay for your gasoline that way so uh there may be a few pockets like that where people are struggling to be out of the system but if you want to live in anything close to our standard of living that we've enjoyed so far you're going to have to be dependent upon these um Central bank uh, digital currencies, and that'll be totally controlled by the banks. Do you, do you hear from a lot of Do you hear from a lot of people
1: now that all this is happening and saying, "Wow, you you know you were, you were a great prognosticator here. You foresaw all this." I mean, are you getting more attention now than maybe you did before because of the state of the world?
3: Yeah, I think that's true. Actually, it's kind of funny in the in the hum way rather than the ha ha way. Uh, it's uh, hum. Hum funny, uh, because when I produced all these documentaries that you've been talking about back in the day, most people weren't interested in them. It seemed to be too far out. I'm talking about things yeah. which which not only are happening today, but many things which have already happened. But at the time they hadn't happened and people were living under the same illusion that I was at one time. Oh, that could never happen in America because we're Americans. and. Uh, So, yeah, most people weren't interested in hearing all of this because they thought, first of all, it would never happen. And secondly, it it wasn't true in the first place. Uh, You could show them documentation. You could show them quotes. You could say, here's the book. This is the book or the pamphlet that so-and-so wrote. They look at it, "Ah, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, you know, because they didn't want to believe it. So in those days, it was pretty hard to get a lot of um, enthusiasm about my work. But today I get calls all the time and say, "Hey Ed, did you know that one of your old videos that just got put up on um, the internet and it's gotten three million views? You got to be kidding! What? <laughs> <laughs> one of those old things I did? I'd even forgotten about it, and they're getting
2: well.
1: well when you when you first started, we did not have. I mean, you had. Uh- you had John Birch Society and and uh, a few things like that, really. And you you would, but you didn't have this what we have now, this kind of conspiracy world where you've got millions of people, young people and everything that are that are awake and that are loving material like which you wrote, you know, decades ago. Did you ever? Think, I mean, this must this must make you feel good. I mean, that you have there's a much bigger base out there that's receptive to what you've been talking about.
3: Well, it does, it does make me feel very good. And I'm glad to see one thing I had not anticipated, one of the many things I had not anticipated, but the one I'm talking about is that it was the young folks that seemed to be the most interested now. Whereas back in my day, when I was just getting into this, I would go to patriotic meetings of one kind or another, and they were all old people like I am today. But where are the young people? I was, I was, you know, 21, 22 years old or so like that. And I was, I was ready to get this thing over with you know i wanted to get back to my my fun i thought the long view of history did not interest me Uh, that we can do this by the next election we just get a good a good candidate well then we can win little did i know about the the multi-generational aspect of these psychological wars you have to change the culture gradually over a period of decades before they can take the kind of steps that they're now taking
1: yeah, well, it, and, but it must because it's uh, it's frustrating in a way because you know there are millions of people out there that know what's going on, but we're still outnumbered. I mean, is it do you do you worry about w- what the world's going to look like for your children? And I don't know if you have grandchildren in 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 you know t- twenty years, thirty years from now.
3: Well, absolutely. That's what caused me to quit my job in the first place back mm-hmm. in the day when I thought I had, you know, everything was looking rosy. It's because I started to think about exactly what you just said, my children, my grandchildren, and then as the years went by, I started to worry more about what's going to happen to me. I got closer and closer and closer. You
1: know? <laughs> you know a lot of people believe we're in the end times now. You know, people that uh, follow the Bible. Uh, my friend Bob Wilson talks about that every day. You know, that the, the signs in the Bible are, are. Are you a religious man? Do you do you see any of those signs that that, that we're you know. The, uh no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark and all that stuff.
3: Well, I think on that issue, it's it's already on the on the drawing boards. Yeah. But I don't consider that that is necessarily a religious issue, just because it's in the Bible. Uh, now, might be I'm not arguing that it's not, but I think that the uh, you know not being able to buy or sell is exactly what we're talking about. Now, whether that's the mark of the beast or a mark of the tyrant or what, I don't know. I consider myself to be a very spir- spiritually uh, centered person. I, I don't uh, identify with um, any of the particular denominations or particular religions, although I identify with many of them. But I don't consider myself to be a you know a this or that and so forth. But um, I think most most thinking people know that there is purpose in the universe and uh, there's design in everything you see. Whether you look up into the stars, into the galaxies, and study the patterns of orbits and gravity and and all that sort of thing. And or if you look into a microscope and look down the other way and you see all these little living things interacting with each other, forming into organs and everything is so so synchronized. I mean, just we were talking about somebody getting pregnant the other day and having a baby. And I got to think, do you realize how complicated it is for a new baby to be formed between an egg and a sperm and what's right. in those? and all has to be timed correctly. Right. And they have to form and they have to not fight each other. I mean, it's, it must be a million and seven different steps that it has to go through. Each one has to be precisely timed and engineered. And you can't tell me that 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 was an accident
1: yeah uh, random yeah that's 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 part of the the narrative that they're pushing all the time is it's everything's random you know we're just uh,
3: we're meaningless well, specs you know and <laughs> that's actually been one of my long-time goals is to write a book about that very thing about the absurdity of the random theory of evolution yeah uh yeah random everything
1: and, and it's it's bad, but look at things like evolution are coming under i mean people are questioning the young people are questioning everything. I, I can tell you, I I hear that there's a flat earth movement. There's a hollow earth movement. There's a computer simulation movement. People are questioning the nature of reality. I think it's a good thing.
3: Well, I hope that they're questioning it because none of us understand it. Yeah. No. There's one person <laughs> I've ever met. They may think, well, I know what it's all about because I read it and it's in the good book. But they don't understand it. They just believe it. Maybe that's good enough. I'm not saying it's not. But I do not understand it. I do not I was just saying go. Back in the day there was a, a comedy routine. It was called the I think it was the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe or something. Yes, like that. yes. I yeah sure. Yeah. My kids my kids were really into that, and I listened to some of those recordings. And I remember this one recording that just I'll never forget it. It started off by saying, in the beginning, there was nothing. And then nothing blew up. (laughs) Exactly. In the beginning, there was a giant ball.
1: Boom. And then there's the universe.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So the idea that if there's nothing and then something came out of nothing, it's just an absurdity. I don't and that doesn't mean I understand the way it really works, but I know that's not the way it works.
1: Exactly. I think that's it. T- Tony's back. Uh, Tony you have I'm sure you have latency. And uh, well, I want to say first of all that we normally we have a chat room and everything but uh and, and I'm sure it would have been more crowded than ever today and uh it's uh, just the luck of the thing that something happened so I, I don't think we can I, we would have lots of questions from you for the chat room but for some reason it's not working right Tony you're still not
0: Yeah, it's uh, nothing on our end we could have done better don just something that I think Rockfins yeah. technical issue. so Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, What to rerun it. This is a great show. I'm just so glad we got to talk to Mr. Griffin. I've wanted to for years, but his, his work has changed uh, countless lives. And I think, you know, we talk about where we're heading with the central bank, digital currency. That's to me, that's what I'm warning everyone about. I mean, it's, it's a poison pill. You can't accept it. There's no compromise. I mean, the thing is they get that. I don't want to say that, you know, it depends on how my mood is. I just say it's game set match. But I'm not so sure, and I, you know, I'd love to get your opinion, Mr. Griffin, on the um, the trend of history. History, you know, as far as from the, you know, Protestant Reformation, the American Revolution, uh, things have been trending towards decentralization for at least the people, but the powers that be want centralization. So that's what all mm-hmm. I think you're talking about these generational psychological wars. To me, everything points towards trying to subvert the human condition, like where we're trying to go. Um, you know, people look at how much and people like work remotely now or, or mm-hmm. uh, want to use the Internet to become an entrepreneur and not go into an office or do a nine to five. I think there's, you know, and even on the scale of people breaking away from larger countries like the Catalonians in Spain and all the rest, I think I think we're trending towards decentralization. But at the same time, like the IMF just came out, they're going to build a central a central uh, digital currency mm-hmm. for uh, for a reconciliation system for the rest of the the rest of the world so everybody's trying to all these bankers are trying to centralize and i just think that uh, people um, are going to resist this at some level i don't think it's going to go just like oh well we i guess we have we're we're in uh, the brave new world now i don't (laughs) think it's going to be just that quick i do think that things like cryptocurrency and uh you, you should see the emails that I get on my from my gold and silver business people that have never bought precious metals and they're now they're like, Well, I need that. I need silver for the you know what could happen in the future. I need gold, you know, to protect my assets and all this stuff. I don't I think that they've really played their hand. Um I think they've overplayed it. Let's put it that way. And uh I don't think the future's set. Do you uh do you have any hope in there
3: as well? Well, I do. I'm glad you put it that way. Hope. I do have great hope because um, there are two, in fact, it was funny, I was just thinking about this this morning as I was waking up. There are two good things that could change the course of history, good things. One is that our opponent would overplay his hand and move too quickly, lose control of it because it's been going great so far, but now he's in a hurry. He's in a hurry because he sees that we're waking up. So he, maybe it's not a bad move, but it, it's making him more vulnerable. That was the one thing, if our opponent uh, goes too fast. And the other good thing is if the opposition doesn't just stand around looking at it, but mobilizes itself and pushes back. Those two things have to happen. And uh, there's no question that the first thing is happening. And of course, I'm devoting most of my time now in trying to build a coalition to make the second thing happen. I think we already have enough people awake and fully enough informed to do the job, but they don't know that there are others in the world. I think they're all alone, many of them. And so our job is to build that coalition. I think we're already past the tipping point. I don't know what that would be, but I'm guessing about 15, 16% of the population could easily tip this. And I think we've already got that, if not more. So our job is to get organized. And not only get organized, but then to do something with that organization.
0: Right. And not the yeah. same things over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> that have brought, brought no results. I think right. I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm looking to people to go more local and to start doing what you've started doing, just just sharing information. I think that's one of the reasons they've they've accelerated all these plans. Like they're hitting you with everything. It's it's hitting yeah. you with the, the lockdowns, then it's monkeypox, then it's the, the murder hornets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the oh, yeah. war they're just pulling out every trick that they can do and you're like, okay yeah. well I know that you want to get your central bank digital currency off the ground but uh they keep hiring incompetent i like I, I kind of like I don't know what you i'll I'll, I'll throw it back to Don too because this is his show but i I'm actually kind of a fan of them uh hiring all the woke people like for government jobs like the i think like the weirder <laughs> the better now I just hire the yeah. weird one because is that person competent? You know, like, is that I just want them to hire and then have those people hire other and then make it just where it's like an inert thing. <laughs> <It's>
3: just, <laughs> yeah. Well, you got a good point, but don't forget <laughs> they're all going to have guns,
0: <laughs> right? Yes,
3: I, I do remember that. I just, I, I'm trying to find silver lining somewhere, yeah, yeah. I have to say that, um, what you just said is that we have to get organized and build local units, I think that's critical, and um, I guess many of your viewers know that we've been pushing something called red pill expo yes sir and red pill university our new red pill expo is coming up in november 12 and 13 in salt lake city so if anybody wants to see what that's all about be sure to come to our website if i may give the url here
2: yes absolutely i'm sure of
3: course redpillexpo.org and i'll be putting up some of our speakers probably later tonight you will see them all right now you see all of the ones from the last time and the, they're all really big names and a lot of great information. But the part that most people don't know anything about is the a Red Pill University, which is really the sponsoring uh, umbrella over the Red Pill Expo. The Red Pill University, we're in the process now of setting up campuses in every, in every county in the country and in the similar political subdivisions around the world. I mean, we think big. We know we've got to have people boots on the ground, meeting with others eyeball to eyeball, shaking their hand, going to coffee together, getting to know them and their families, to know who they can trust, to form local units who can help each other and also to become influential in helping to steer the political and social movements in their local communities. You can't do that sitting at a computer. You've got to be on the ground, handing out pamphlets, giving speeches, all that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm just saying that anybody that, that really wants to get on with this, the the part of what are we going to do about it, ought to take a good serious look at the Red Pill University and their campuses. And if they'll come to our RedPillUniversity.org site, uh, we'll be having information about that very very soon. Let me put that up on the screen. Yeah, thank yeah.
1: you. Well, it's it's great you have uh, and you have platforms like this. You have a lot more platforms available to you than ever, right? Are you doing? Many interviews, or did you just love me so much you had to come on? I mean, how many do you? Are oh, you it's just, it's just
3: total love. That's all it is. <laughs>
1: that's, that's what I want to hear.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I've uh, been doing a lot of them probably too much because I'm getting pushback from others who say, yeah, that's all well and good, Ed, but uh, don't forget your deadline that you missed. And uh, so I've got to get either working longer, smarter, or faster. Well, it's
1: fantastic. I mean, most people your age are not don't don't have a tenth of your energy. You're amazing. uh, Tony will say one of my really good friends is 89 year old John Barber. He's a showbiz legend, but he's very into the JFK assassination like I am. So we we become great friends and he has the energy of a teenager. And you remind me of that as well. It's amazing uh, how energy. Do you think it's because you you have a passion for all these things and it keeps you going?
3: I guess. I don't know what else it can be. I certainly don't deserve <laughs> it. He's uh, got purpose. He's got a great purpose. purpose. Yeah. It, I think purpose makes a lot of difference. By the way, just in case you, you didn't know it, my, many people do, but I was almost uh, going out the door toe first here in last uh, November uh, after yeah. our event in Indianapolis. On the 14th of November, I was on my way home and I was hit with really hard brought, brought down by something which would normally be diagnosed as COVID-19, had all the symptoms. Mm -hmm. But um, in my case, I was knocked out by it and uh, I lost consciousness and uh, it affected my heart and all these fine things. And uh, I was, everybody said, you're you're not gonna live more than a couple more days. And, uh, but here I am. And uh, so I'm recovering. I'm still, you probably detect I have a little bit of shortness of breath. But even that is on the men's now, and I think by the time we get to um, Salt Lake City in November, I'll be back striding across the stage like, like I knew what I was doing. And uh, so I don't. Back to your question about health, I think I'm just lucky because as a young guy, I did all the bad things, you know, uh, except maybe Smoked. smoke cigarettes. <laughs> I didn't smoke cigarettes, but that's okay. everything else you could think of, I was, I was, you know, ready to sign up for it. <laughs>
0: i want to come see you in uh in november then i'll come out to salt lake city i I didn't oh, please I, do that yeah okay
3: i'm gonna sign yeah. up for it. yeah do it and maybe you want to be part of our uh, media team because we're going to have some outstanding uh speakers there and you'll have access to those guys and gals maybe you want to record some sure interviews yeah, I
0: can do my show from there do, do you sign up that separate is that a oh? No, that'd be great
3: uh, well just You'll want to talk to Carlene Potter about that. She's our event coordinator, and she'll get you tied in with the right people and make sure that you're in a good location. And, uh, yeah, you can broadcast live from there. Yeah, great let's idea. go out
0: there, Don. Let's go do the show. It? Let's go out and do the show from, uh, from Salt Lake City. There
1: <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's it. But uh, I want to make sure you're okay. You sound, you, you sound great to me. You certainly don't short, sound short-winded as uh, some of the people I talk to in their 30s. So you're you're doing fine, but are you okay? We we have a half an hour left of the show. We'd love to keep talking with you, but I I don't want to wear you out, and I don't want to I don't want you to go farther than you want to go. So it's up to you.
3: Well, uh, I feel fine, but uh, do we have? Let's do it.
1: Yeah, let's Uh, do it. Okay, it's great because I'm sure Tony and I both have a lot more questions for. I want to talk a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, I I wrote in Hidden History a little bit about uh, Leotril and how that was one of the first. uh, the, one of the first attacks by the government on the so-called health, you know, food industry, because Laetrile is the, a, a, the uh, kernel of an apricot. I mean, I could, you know, gosh, how could they be dangerous? But, uh, and I was reading the, one of the attacks on you, I was reading like the Wikipedia for, you know, saying this is wacky theory, there's no evidence. And uh, didn't we later find out that Ronald Reagan secretly was taking Laetrile injections when he had secretly had cancer in the White House?
3: Well, that's what I'd heard. I can't prove that. But it makes no difference whether he took it or not uh hundreds of thousands of people have taken it maybe they're not known to anybody else but the hospital records and the medical records are clear we published on that there's a very much higher uh get well rate using non-toxic remedies such as laotril than there is using chemotherapy and radiation and that's that's the bottom line does it work not in a Every case, no, but in a much higher percent, uh, by far, than orthodox therapy. What and, more and, do you need to know?
1: And what would be the, what? What did people tell you when you were advocating for it? What would be the rationale for saying you can't use it? Why would you forbid that? Again, it's the it's the kernel of an apricot. Did they try to claim there was some potential danger in it? That's ridiculous.
3: Oh yeah, they claimed that there was a great deal of danger in it. They they made two <laughs> claims. First of all, they said doesn't work. And there's a, I have a whole chapter on that in my book called "The mm-hmm. World Without Cancer." Uh, the studies done by Sloan Kettering were all rigged, and I I I proved that from the records of the of the hospital staff themselves. One of them, who was their public relations director, uh, even quit his job over it. He said I he said I cannot I cannot uh, support these lies. He quit his job and made a press conference and said that the Tests were being rigged against Leotril, and so forth. And we got, the, we got actual copies of the, of the laboratory results. And so we know that um, all the good results that was being obtained was being deliberately buried by Sloan Kettering. So that's a shocking thing in itself. And then, um, let's see, the other part of that was, uh, oh yeah, not only does it, they claimed it doesn't work, when in fact it works better than anything they've got, but they also say it was dangerous because they said it's got cyanide in it. And uh, this is one of those half-truths. So let me give you, since we got the time, I'll give you just a, a little rundown on the chemistry. Mm-hmm. Amygdalin, which is the real name for laetrile, uh, but in nature uh, where it's recorded in the, uh, the medical books and the, and the biology books, uh, it's called amygdalin, and amygdalin has uh, a molecule that has four component parts. There are one part of of um, sugar, glucose, and one part of. Uh, you see, it's been a long time since I've torn this apart. Anyway, one part, of, two parts of cyanide, and another part of benzaldehyde. Well, everybody knows cyanide is dangerous. In fact, it's fatal if you uh, get too much of it. So their, their statement is based on the truth that there is cyanide in the amyg- amygdalin molecule. But it's in the amygdalin molecule. Cyanide is a gas. In its true nascent form, cyanide is a gas. So it's obviously not cyanide. It's cyanide combined with something else. Now, does this happen in nature? And it does. Vitamin B12, for example, is called cyanocobalamin. And so we find in vitamin B12, there's cyanide in vitamin B12, and yet we would all be dead without it. You don't hear them talk, oh, don't don't take vitamin B12 because there's cyanide in it. But they do say that about amygdalin. The only thing you have to worry about with a compound a molecule that has cyanide locked in it with something else is what conditions causes the cyanide to be released then you have to worry about it then you de- are dealing with pure cyanide well it turns out that in the cancer world there is only one thing that releases the cyanide from that molecule and that is an enzyme called beta glucosidase I forget the name in my book I called it the unlocking enzyme and so if you have amygdala in your body and it comes in contact with um, beta glucosidase you're in trouble so where does that enzyme come from well here's the here's the kicker the enzyme is found in cancer cells and only in cancer cells think about that for a minute. This is nature's perfect answer. You have cancer cells, and one of the things it does is produce the unlocking enzyme. So if you're eating foods, as you should be, that are rich in in amygdalin, don't need a lot, but a little bit comes along, it hits the unlocking enzyme, comes out of the cancer cell, and oops, bye-bye cancer cell. It's the kind of a magic bullet that all the pharmaceutical companies are trying to replicate. What,
1: what, what foods would be rich in that, just uh, for, for people? Well, that are apricot interested. seeds.
3: All the yeah. seeds in the rosacea family, apricots, peaches, plums, uh, uh, apples have it, the apple seeds. If you've if you ever chewed into an apple seed, give it a moment in your mouth and it's very, very bitter. Hmm. And that's the reason people are not interested in foods that are loaded with amygdalin. in primitive societies of course, they, they can't be too fussy. And they're, they often eat foods that are rich in amygdalin. But the to our bit, taste buds, they'd be kind of bitter. Um, but um, but in those countries where they eat these bitter foods, there's very low cancer rate or practically none at all. It's one of the interesting pieces of evidence. Um, so I don't, what more can I say? That's, yeah, they say it, it's dangerous when in fact it's a lie. And they know it but they do it anyway because they want to tout people away from it sure. and back into the, into the expensive drugs. You can spend, you know, 10, $20,000 on a chemotherapy treatment and it'll kill you It'll destroy your immune system. And I, am thinking that more people die from chemotherapy than from the cancer itself.
1: We're but- getting, we're getting, we're getting a few questions for you here. Again, we don't have our mainstream, but uh, Charlotte yeah. Richardson, nice to have you here nice to hear of you here. Laura Rubin and Brandy Lou. Uh, sorry, again, our main live stream is not working. Uh, it's, Charlotte says, is it true cancer can't live in, alkaline, in an alkaline body? This is what I have heard. So I drank apple cider water.
3: Huh. Well, it's true <laughs> that cancer cannot live in an oxygen-rich environment. It's anaerobic. Now, the, it depends on how a on, on how base the mixture is, whether it's acidic or not but it's right. I think it's true. Uh, cancer loves acidic, uh, environment. It, uh, it loves no oxygen. So that's why so many of the therapies, the natural therapies that are not toxic. Some of them really work well, like, like, um, hyperthermia. They've used that mm-hmm. in Europe for a long time. Just put people in a hospital bed, cover them up with blankets and make them sweat. You know, just get them hot. Well, yeah. And all of a sudden, that's improving your white blood cell uh, production and the movement of the blood through the system. Carries more oxygen, and Bobby darn, cancer doesn't do well where people use hyperthermia. Simple as that. Yeah. Well, you're you're certainly you've learned what
1: in all the course of all the things you've written and researched about. Um, what what thing really shocked you the most? Especially, you. I'm sure you probably got used to discovering you know, controversial things and uh, conspiratorial type stuff. What really kind of made you sit there and go, "Wow, I, I can't, I can't believe this. This one really is unbelievable."
3: I think I say that about all of them every time I discover <laughs> a new one. And who would yeah. have thought of that? Um, yeah. I will say this: um, I missed the vaccine ploy. I mean, not missed it, but I didn't anticipate it. And I should have yeah. because I lived through the, uh, you know, the AIDS charade. Yeah. Uh, yes,
1: yeah, so you wrote about that, too. You can talk about that. Yeah. How you, you, you think there's? I mean, do you see the parallels now? Because look at Anthony Fauci. He was right in the middle of that. And wasn't it basically the same thing where he was taking people with no symptoms at all and giving them an HIV test and then yeah. saying you're and then giving this horrible AZT that killed a lot of them, didn't it?
3: oh yeah, AZT is a chemotherapy drug developed for that. And they had to, they never sold it. They put it on the shelf because it was killing too many of the test subjects. It's too toxic. And they took it off the shelf later and started giving it to uh, AIDS victims. And said, so, gee, I guess the, the therapy didn't work. Look, they died. <laughs> and it kept, and it's, it's pretty much been repeated here because of
1: the same kind of criticisms that people have of this uh, of the PCR test and any kind of test for COVID is, are you really, people not have symptoms again? And then the treatment.
3: Uh, oh, the remdesivir, remdesivir. Is oh, correct. yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. yeah, it's a, it's a complete parallel. And I, I saw it at that time, but it didn't sink in when COVID first hit. I knew immediately there was something phony about it, but I didn't tie it up with the whole vaccine, vaccine craze and all of that until later on. So that, that kind of snuck up on me, but uh, I guess not much else. What hit me the most, I suppose, is the fact that uh, so many people don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss, right? Where ignorance is bliss
1: is folly uh, to be wise.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. where the, the meme about the red pill is so good because there's a blue pill if you remember in this story. Yeah. Many people didn't want to face reality. It was too harsh. So they wanted to go back.
1: Well, you use this, you, you use this red pill university thing. Were you a fan of the matrix? Cause that's where it comes from.
3: Exactly. Yeah. That's right. We, we lifted it from that story. It's, I thought at the beginning that, well, maybe this would be too corny. People will think we're not serious about our work, but let's give it a try. Well, no, nobody's, nobody says that's too corny. They get it right away. And, uh, it's becoming quite popular. It is. Tony, did you have a question? Well, I
0: was gonna say he talking about the uh the jabs and just how much we talked earlier about how much they've overplayed their hand in everything. And that was a major overplay. I mean, they're now they're just trying to figure out who to blame it on. Like what they just done with Operation Warp Speed. And they're like, hey, it's the guy that did it. And then you can see the left and major publications are like, look what Donald Trump did to us with these vaccines. I mean, literally starting to do it. And I thought, wow. I mean, because they have pushed, you know, if you don't believe in that, you don't believe in science. You don't like science? Yeah, Carl. we would go. Carl. Yeah, do the do. Um, we'd like to investigate. Can we have questions? No, you can't question science. Science is already settled. All science is settled.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I think they've really overplayed their hand on that. It's going to blow up yeah. big, big time in their face.
3: Well, as long as we don't let them hide behind uh, ignorance, you know, because the, the average gum chewing public will won't remember what they did last year. All they will remember is what they read in the newspaper today. And unfortunately, that's true.
1: Yeah, Yeah,
3: Fauci could come out tomorrow and say, well, we made a big mistake. We should have have looked at this more carefully. We have now learned that and we want you all to be aware that, you know, blah, 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 whatever it is. So he would be placed in the position of a savior. This is how they work.
1: Yes. Get your next booster. Has your your family been divided like so many others on the vaccine issue? Uh, Do you still have Thanksgiving together? So many families, including mine, have have become divided over this.
3: No, I'm fortunate. Our family has not. We had one uh, one of their kids that was going to take the jab because he was told at work it was a good thing, you know, and... uh, Vaccines are safe. We've been using them for years and they've saved a lot of lives, you know? And he was ready to go and I pulled him aside. I said, no, wait a minute. Let's take a look at some data here. And he went kind of slow, but he re- rejected it. And then a little bit later, he's, he got to see people that he knew were not doing well, let's put it that way, who had taken the jab. And that, that convinced him more than the data.
0: It's such a clear overreach, but everything yeah. that they've done in the last uh, two or three years has just been over the top. And I think yeah. that's why I am uh, somewhat optimistic if we can organize a little bit uh, on the local level and stop trying to go to Babylon, Washington, D.C. to fix things, because that's just you can't fix things there. No, no, you no. Know? I would like to see like local level counties, like convicting and suing people and like convict sending out arrest warrants from the local, you know, to the public officials. Like
3: we can can happen. That can can happen. Yeah. And you can, you can affect local elections. You can change the composition of your county board of supervisors, your city council, your board of education, your sheriff. That's
1: where, I, that's where I see the battle happening, right? Especially in the school boards. Do you, do you think uh, there will be, because certainly you got a lot of angry parents and you've got a lot of absolutely, completely insane <laughs> teachers and school board members out there promoting the most ridiculous
3: stuff imaginable.
1: Yeah. Do, you, do you think there's a chance that the, they can, because if they can't make any headway at that level, then what chance is there at the national level?
3: Well, I think we can, yeah. In fact, uh, the evidence that we've already had is is clear. It doesn't take an awful lot of organization at the local level to, uh, to turn the tide on these things. You get, you get a small group of people working on behalf of a candidate for this county board of supervisors, and they go out and raise money and distribute pamphlets from door to door or whatever they do. Right? That's better than a political party can do. And um, I've, seen, I've seen the results already happen. Uh, I won't say what counties, but we're working on those now. And it's amazing, with well, this kind of a multiplier effect. Uh, two people working independently can accomplish, independently, they don't know each other, they're all doing their own thing. They can accomplish mu- as much work as two people, let's just say, two person output. But if they work together, they will square their results. They'll produce the results of four. And if three of them come together, they'll produce the results of nine, four of them come together, 16, and so forth. I've seen this over the years. It really honestly works that way. And uh, so if you can imagine a campus, a red pill campus, with a membership of, say, oh, 10 people, let's be conservative, 10 people who really understand what's going on, and are willing to get out there and spend a good deal of their time and effort Maybe they don't have, their crusader genes don't have to rattle quite as loudly as mine, but they have to have them. Those 10 people can accomplish, can, can beat the power of a 100-man organization quite easily. And especially since truth is on our side, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to do. I'm just going to say that because we've done it. We, well, uh, talk a little more about Red Pill University. Well, it's just a name. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a group. It's it's no different in, in function. As uh, Antifa on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's you see they know what they're doing. They're organized at the local level, right? The local level, and they put boots on the ground. They're out in the street, haven't they'd be. Tony has they, it up
1: on the screen now.
3: Yeah. So Wait. it's we call it a campus, but it, it's just a an activist group.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, you
1: sound like you're, you're, you're involved in a lot of stuff. You're very active. You're, you're definitely still an activist, right? I mean, you consider. Oh being, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. Cause you're, you're involved with the local efforts and obviously you're still, you're still writing, uh, you know, this just amazing that you, that you had this kind of energy and this drive still. And, uh, you know, cause a lot of people, I gotta tell you, and it's, you have, cause it, Tony and me and a lot of the people I taught, Jeff Rents, I go on a show every Monday and, uh, a lot of times it's almost like you know we're we're holding each other's hands and walking up to the top of the building you know I mean we're it's just hard not to become overwhelmed with negativity how how do you find cuz I, I, I see a little optimism in you how do you find that cuz we'd love to yeah. have it it's it's it's, well, it's tough you know
3: it happened to me some time ago when I got used to the idea that the solution won't happen at the next election. When I first came into this movement, I was very upset to hear the old-timers say, well, Ed, you're getting pretty much in a hurry, you know. This, this took 100 years or more to get to where we are. We're not gonna turn it around in two years. It's gonna yeah. take another 100 years, maybe, maybe 50. I used to get so mad at that, I think these old, old codgers don't know what they're talking about. I don't wanna wait 100 years. I'm gonna gonna get it done by the next election or the the one after that. Well, when I finally came to the realization that they were right, and I began to think about my role on that, that uh, long generational view, the long view of history, I began to feel very comfortable with it. I can go to sleep now with a smile on my face, knowing I have put one more brick in the foundation Just one brick, maybe, or two bricks that day. I may never see the building completely, you know, completely done, but I've got in my mind the blueprint. I can see it in my mind. And it's a magnificent structure. And if I can just keep adding the bricks to it and others also, if I can get others to help me. And now we we put in 10 bricks today. I can see that foundation building and building. And it's hard to beat it. It's uh it's a, it's, it gives you a feeling of great accomplishment.
1: You should yeah. have. Yeah. I, like
3: I can see why people would
1: want to have you involved because you're inspirational and certainly your, your lifetime's worth of work. Uh, what, what are you proudest of looking back on all the things you've written, all the documentaries you've made? You made a documentary, I think, about you worked with Larry McDonald, the congressman who unfortunately uh, went down in the plane crash and that. Jack Anderson, the horrible journalist said, you know, if any of the Congress people could go down, they picked the right one or something. Just imagine somebody saying something like that. And he didn't lose, he didn't lose any of his reputation, his good reputation that made him. But all the things you've worked on, what, what are you proudest of? Or do you have one thing that you're proudest of?
3: Well, I guess the two things that I'm most proud of, and that's maybe as an overstatement, I don't want to sound like I'm just a, a proud person, but I feel most rewarded for having done is to write the, my two best-selling books, The Creature from Jekyll Island and World Without Cancer. And the reason I feel that that pride of accomplishment is that I started from ground zero on both of those topics. I knew nothing about health, natural health or or chemistry health. I knew nothing about banking or money or anything. It's just a complete <laughs> ground zero. And so I feel, I feel uh, happy that I was able to see those projects through to, to completion and to see that they stand the test of opposition because they have, uh, I was very afraid in both cases that after I published the book that, uh, you know, somebody who knows a lot more about these things than I do, is gonna just tear me apart and make mincemeat out of me for, because of my errors. And that never happened. In my World Without Cancer book, I remember when I finally got it published, uh, I had a, a good friend from Ohio who was a doctor, an MD, uh, really great guy. He got hold of the book and he, he told me, he said, Ed, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but you should stick with the things you know. Uh, oh my God! He said, "You know, you're way off beat here." Now, I got to tell you the rest of that story. About nine months later, he was using leotril in his cancer treatments and be, was becoming a national figure as an advocate of what's in my book. So he decided to try it and to test some of the hypotheses that I'd written about, and he found that they were correct. So. That is the kind of thing I I, I I waited for somebody to cut me to shreds. And with the um, creature from Jekyll Island, I thought, oh, my gosh, banking, <laughs> central banking. I don't know anything about it. They're going to tear me apart when they see my creature book. I thought so someday some college professor who teaches money in banking is going to just make me look awful in public. The day finally came. I was on a book tour right after the book was published I was back on the East Coast and uh, I got a call said somebody at local radio station the talk show host and he he's willing to interview you on the radio you want to go of course that's why I was there I wanted all the publicity I could get all the exposure so I walk into the studio and there's this very distinguished looking gentleman sitting at the table with a microphone in front of him and the talk show host, and the empty chair was for me. So I found out when I walked into the studio that this gentleman sitting down there was a college professor from a local university who taught money and banking. And we were gonna have not an interview so much as a debate. I thought, well, mamma mia, this is it. (laughs) The moment has come for my demise. So we sat down, went on the air, and uh, the host said, well, he gave my bio and the bio of the professor. He said, I said, Mr. Griffin, will you start off and just do a summary, kind of a summary of what your position is on the Federal Reserve? I said, sure. So I did, I think I took about three minutes to, to list all of the highlights of what I was trying to say about Federal Reserve and the reason I was opposed to it. And with that, he turned to the professor and he said, well, professor, what? What's your response to that? And I'm hanging on in my chair like, here it comes. And uh, he took a long time before he spoke his first word. And then he said, well, what he says is true, but we're living well, aren't we? (laughs) That was his rebuttal. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, to this day, that is the only basic rebuttal I've ever had.
1: They have no, I mean, what are, what are, how can anyone possibly defend this? It's a, it's basically legalized counterfeiting. How, how, they can't defend it except for smear somebody's well, criticizing. They,
3: they can defend it in theory. They can only say, well, if we didn't do that, it would have been worse. Like, we're living well, aren't we? You know, <laughs> we needed it. Look, we had a prosperous, era, right? America is prosperous and we wouldn't have had prosperity without that, they say. So it's theory. They can't prove that. So it's theoretical argument. But when it comes now, you say, yeah, yeah, we see what happened to the economy. You're telling me that we, that's because of the Fed, right? Now we're in agreement, finally. And, uh, so anyway, so that was a great relief. And so you asked me what makes me proud. Well, I guess relieved is more, is a better word, is the events like that.
1: Mm-hmm. that's a good feeling i guess but yeah, yeah we're, we're we're still got a few minutes left tony tony did anything else you wanted to bring up with uh mr griffin
0: well, n- not not off the top of my head i mean he's covered so much and uh just i'm so yeah. glad he, it was such a great show it's so great just to see him here and i was thinking man, i got to tell g ever griffin live on air how much his book helped to push me into yeah. what i do now i don't know if I'd be doing what I'm doing now as far as the yeah. uh, gold yeah. and silver business and uh it's it's been really good to me just getting that first lesson into the origins of our currency and then how everything really in my mind tracks back to that like it's like it's it's like patient zero like you go to that and you can figure out you can reverse engineer
3: everything if you go back to that so thank you well thank you for saying that I've heard that response from many people and of course it was yeah. my own response after I figured out what the heck was going on, I took an interest in my own financial resources.
1: well you've do, you've, done, you've been you've been a deep influence on me on my in my research and you know so many of the people that influenced me are no longer with us Professor Anthony Sutton, who I'm sure you're you've read oh, yeah. his works, you know just hey, Wall Street and the rise of Hitler, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution, Wall Street and FDR. I mean I'm sure that deeply influenced you. We talked about uh, Eustace Mullins, uh, uh, Bill Cooper. Who is uh, oh, uh, Tony's? So there's so many. Uh, right, what are, we, in the few minutes we have left? What, what are your? What do you
3: think, of Alex Jones? Did Alex Jones ever have you on? Oh yeah, I've been on Alex's show a lot, a lot of times. Okay. And uh, I love Alex because he's usually right yeah. about what he says. Uh, he's got a different style than I do. He's more bombastic. He's a, I, he's a great salesman. He's very entertaining. Very entertaining. I suspect that maybe the. That's part of it. He probably feels he has to do that to uh, yeah. hold the audience. Because I've met a few celebrities like that, and, and off stage they're quite different than they are on stage or mm-hmm. on the air. And I think that's basically true with uh, Alex. But um, well, I don't know. Alex is—he's uh, one of the fighters out there. I, yeah. he—he oh, oh, he woke up a lot of people. And did did you? Did you um...
1: Speaking of celebrities, have you ever heard from any any celebrities that, uh, in secret, you know, knew of your work and uh, confessed to you, but don't tell anybody outside of Hollywood or anything?
3: No, that's never happened. <laughs> uh, oh, I
1: was hoping somehow.
3: <laughs> do either of you fellas have a copy of my book there on your desk?
0: It's um, in my cabin. No, I, have, not, I have a, not a copy here. In my well,
3: cabin. I don't have it behind me. I'm trying to think. We got um, a well-known... Uh, Country western singer, and I can't think of his name, and I'd have to go get my book out. He's an old timer, still uh, kicking out there.
1: Waylon uh, Jennings. Uh, who?
3: Both.
1: Waylon Jennings or?
3: No. <laughs> anyway, oh heck, I'm gonna go get it. Hang in there.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is live radio. You're watching G. Edward Griffin walk over to his Good massive library. Stuff. Is there anything by Donald Jeffries in there? I don't know. I don't dare ask him. <laughs> there he comes. Makes Okay, a,
3: Makes a great doorstop. <laughs> that's a nice big book. Oh, Willie Nelson, of course. Yes.
1: Willie Nelson. Oh, yeah. Willie Nelson was not. Willie Nelson was on uh, Alex talking about 9-11 Truth before.
3: Yeah. Well, Willie Nelson was the one I was trying to think of. That's about as close as I get to a celebrity. Oh, he's pretty big. Geez. And uh, he says, uh, he says, "Scary, the story of the world banking system." Enough said. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's it, Willie Nelson's name on it, man. That that's really cool.
3: Yeah.
1: So. Uh, did you did you ever did you ever get to meet or talk to Willie? No. No, he just he just got. Well, he just showed he up it. in
3: some magazine where he sent in a letter to. Uh, I forgot what the magazine it was, but I've got a copy of it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! It really is. <laughs> that's
1: very cool to get an endorsement like that. And I yeah. know Willie Willie used to. Uh, I think he's been on Alex before, but he's. I know he was. He wasn't. He didn't talk a whole lot about it, but he. He was. I'm sure Tony probably knew that too, yeah. but. It's,
3: well, here's sure. another one. This is, a, this is a comment I get a lot from bankers. In the beginning, I thought whenever I ran into a banker, they would be hostile to me. It turns out to be just the opposite. Most of the guys at the local level, the gals, mm-hmm. they're very interested in this. Mm-hmm. Um, my local Bank of America, I'm almost a celebrity because mm-hmm. they didn't understand what's in this book. Wow. I'm glad to know it. Here's an interesting statement by Marilyn Magruder Barnwell. She says, as a career banker and president of a bank consulting firm, I thought I had a good understanding of the Federal Reserve, but this book changed the way I view our entire monetary system. So Wow.
1: That must mean more to you than anything else. I mean, that you, you mean you a lot. Enli- yeah, you enlighten bankers. Wow, that's
3: yeah. And that's sort of back to your question of what am I most proud of? If I understand yeah. the yeah. it, it just makes me feel good. Yeah, uh, starting from ground zero where I didn't know beans about beans, um, <laughs> I get something that w- was not filled with too many errors. Anyway, I did have one error. With some professor wrote me said, I got the um, the czars mixed up. I had Czar Nicholas the fourth <laughs> instead of the fifth, and I had the wrong number on it. But other other well, than that, that, that means you're
1: wrong about the Federal Reserve. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, that well, that's great. We're running, we're running up. Uh, we we've got about an hour, two hours. So, I'd,
3: okay, that's enough. Very,
1: huh? very, very much appreciate you spending all this time with us, and it was, it's an honor, Tony. Did you have anything else to say? Let me let you give out your links or whatever you want to promote.
0: Well, I would just say with both of these two legends here, you and and Mr. Griffin, I would say that uh, Volta- Voltaire's <laughs> quote, it makes me want, it motivates me to go get my own book out because. Voltaire's quote about uh, the spoken words fly away, but the written word remains. And you guys, your legacy continues. I mean, on and on and on. So it's good to, uh, it's good to take uh, your
3: example to heart. And I certainly will do that. That's a very wise statement. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I'm spending too much of my time with videos and uh, interviews and websites. But Voltaire says they'll go away they go away when the power goes out, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, you're, you're, you're just, you're, a, a an inspiration to everyone. Uh, it's just, you know, I, I can't, I don't know what we can say to sum up a 60 years worth of, <laughs> of fantastic work and you're still going strong. And I, I hope you come back cause we didn't get to talk about nine eleven or anything else. And, uh, so I'd like to talk more to you if you, if you, if you're willing to come back sometime, I'd be honored to have you on. And, sure. and uh, Mr. Griffin, G. Edward Griffin, a legend. Is there anything else, uh, you, anything you want to promote or anything you want
3: to give out? Well, I think the big thing in my brain right now is uh, Red Pill Expo in Salt Lake City, November 12 and 13. And let's see, that's, yeah, there you go. And uh, the, web, the website Red. is, uh, what's the website again? It's um, redpillexpo.org. Yeah, or
0: you Red can Pille. find it on redpilluniversity.org as well. Yes, uh huh.
1: Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for all your years of service. As you say thank you to, for your service to people in the military. Well, thank you for your service 60 years worth of it. A, uh, just a lifetime's right, well, worth you. of it. Thank you for being here. And uh, we're going to have you back at, at, at some point in the near future, I hope. And uh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you being here.
3: Well, thanks for inviting me and I appreciate the good work you're doing. So, hey, we'll see you in Salt Lake City. See you there. There you go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Take uh, care.
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening to I Protest. Take care.